Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above, my, above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? <clears throat> Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, <clears throat> Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will, be, there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one... One of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, my anointed, forever. And everyone who left in your house shall come to implore him for the piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's place, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thank you, Darlin. You remember once again... That though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. And let's ask his help as we open his word together, please. Bow with me. Father, we come to your word this morning, Lord, and we are trusting that, uh, Lord, it is in fact, Lord, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and that, uh, Lord, men who were carried along by your Holy Spirit have spoken. Lord, your words to us that have been breathed out, and they are good for us, they're profitable for correction, for rebuke, for 
training in all righteousness. And so I pray that this would happen even as we consider this very sobering account of your word against Eli and his family because of their unrepentant sin. Lord, we see that you are um, long-suffering, but Lord, you are also holy and just. Lord, that you uh, will not be mocked. And Lord, I pray that even as we consider uh, ourselves as those who who bear your name and Lord uh, are to be your witnesses in the world, that you would help us to, to daily walk in humility before you, to quickly turn from all that is contrary to your law, Lord, that you would empower us more and more by your spirit to be a sort of people that truly are set apart and uh, Lord who are walking in accordance to your commands by the strength that you give through your spirit. And so I pray for just uh, wisdom and insight as we look at your word, Lord, that your spirit would in fact convict us as well, that you keep us from thinking that we are somehow immune from the very sins which Eli was confronted for. And I pray that, uh, Lord, we might also see in Christ your perfect and faithful high priest whom you have established and put forward. And it is him that we rejoice in and in whom our confidence rests. And so we just pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. So the, uh, this morning, the title is simply The Word Against Eli, or Eli and His House. And thinking about the picture of something ripening, generally we think about that as a positive thing. Uh, I know in the world of food and produce, we know that food is not really enjoyable until it is ripe. And uh, if you ever tried to eat a green banana, for example, it just doesn't really taste all that good. We, we wait for something to ripen. Maybe even now some of you are harvesting some lettuce from your garden or some spinach. And you're seeing the little pods forming on the peas and you're looking forward to eating those uh, vegetables. I know I'm especially excited for the tomatoes because my wife makes salsa out of them. And we ran out of salsa a few months ago. So I'm anticipating the ripening of tomatoes. Um, But in the scriptures, the ripening, it is used both positively and negatively. And there can be a positive maturing of a believer and producing of fruit. But we also see at times ripening is used in regards to man's sin and man's rebellion against God. And there's a season in which God allows it to go on. But then when God... determines, excuse me, that he will bring about judgment and swift consequences for the sins of his people. He is long-suffering with man. He is patient, but his patience will give way to his judgment and justice when somebody refuses to repent and humble themselves before God. And this is really one of the most frightening conditions that man can be in where he is aware of God, he is aware of the warnings of God, even as Eli attempted to warn his sons, and yet remains unrepentant, unchanged by the danger that he is in. To see people who rush forward into their own condemnation because they're unwilling to bend and repent before the warnings of God. 
And that is very much the picture of Eli and his house here. God has shown them patience. There has been a season for them to turn from their ways. And yet God, through this prophet, is bringing to Eli a final sentencing of their crimes against God. Now, in the scriptures, we see there are times when God um, brings very sudden judgment, both in the Old and New Testament. We see examples of this. You may think, for example, of Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire before the Lord. So these would have been uh, actually previous cousins to Hophni and Phinehas. Um, Aaron would have been their, uh, I think, great, great uncle. Trying to get the timelines work, worked out here, but they are, um, I'm sorry, great, great uh, grandfather. They would have been the, the offspring of Aaron. And so we have the picture of, uh, of previous times when Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire before the altar of God. And they, they made their own incense, which God had not instructed them to do. And God executed judgment upon them immediately. The fire came out from the altar and they were consumed. And yet here in Eli's case with his sons, it would seem that God has allowed their sin to, to go on. Some maybe would think even unpunished for a time. For years they had been abusing the sacrifices as we saw last week. They were taking the cuts of meat that were supposed to be reserved for God. They were not following the instructions in regards to the, the sacrifice being left upon the altar until the, meat was, the, the fat was burned up. They were taking it raw from the altar and then cooking it for themselves. They were robbing the Lord. They were making a mockery of his sacrifices. And furthermore, we saw last week that the sons of Eli were committing sexual immorality uh, on the very place in which God had said, my presence will, will dwell, the tabernacle of God. And so all of this comes to bear upon this family through the words of this prophet, this man of God. God confronts Eli and his family's sin. He passes a sentence upon them and a warning of the judgment that is going to come. So the question this morning is, well, what is God's response to the wickedness of Eli and his sons? We're going to see four parts to this response. First of all, we see that God reminds Eli of his own calling and purpose. Secondly, God reveals or exposes the sin of Eli and his sons. So he's going to shed a, uh, shine a light on what it is that they have done. Uh, thirdly, God pronounces judgment. And then finally, God also gives a promise of a faithful high priest. So we first have a reminder and then revealing and then a pronouncement and finally a promise. And we began to see this stark contrast last week between the son of Elkanah, Samuel, whom the, the Lord uh, is, is raising up, who's growing in the Lord. Uh, we saw in verse 21 there that the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And again in 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And, and that was contrasted with the wickedness and the rebellion of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. And, and we see that God is, is on the one hand establishing Samuel, this 
the answer to prayer to, that Hannah had prayed for, and she had devoted him to God as a young boy. God is establishing him. He, he is growing up in, in the Lord. And on the other hand, Hophni and Phinehas are filling up their sins. They are ripening in a negative way as a result of their own sin and disregard of God. So God sends, we're told, a man of God to Eli. And this is something of an important shift in the scriptures. Um, in, from this time forward, we begin to see more of an emphasis upon the prophets. And, uh, and not that there weren't prophets. I mean, even Moses is referred to as a prophet. Abraham was referred to as a, a prophet at times. And so there's always been those who speak forth the word of God to the people of God or to the, the nations. But there is a shift here that begins to take place from that of the judges to that of the prophets. And, and we begin to see more of these, um, these ones who are referred to as a man of God or a prophet of God. In fact, Samuel himself is something of a transition uh, as a judge, but also as a prophet of God. And uh, it's interesting, in some ways, the Old Testament is summarized by the law and the prophets. Jesus in Matthew twenty two forty said on these two commandments, speaking of the, the, the summary of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so there begins to unfold this, this more um, central role of the prophet in Israel uh, from this point forward in the Old Testament narrative. And we see that through this prophet, God brings a word to Eli. So he is, he is not speaking of his own accord. This man of God is speaking verbatim. He's speaking exactly what God gave him to say to Eli. And uh, it's important to note when, when someone is speaking, um, you know, kind of in and of the, their own thoughts or opinions or interpretation of what God said, or when they are quoting directly what God had given. And in this case, the man is saying directly the words that God has given. And he indicates this with the phrase, thus says the Lord. So he is coming as a representative, a messenger, an ambassador of the high king, of the creator of the universe. And he is coming as the mouthpiece of God to Eli, which helps us to, to realize the seriousness of what he says. And the first thing then that we see God um, the way in which God responds to Eli is he, re- he gives Eli a reminder of his calling and purpose, of his own heritage as a priest. And he says, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. And God is reminding Eli of his own calling, of his own purpose. Why is he there? Why has he been established in this position? Is it so that he can, you know, uh, have his best life now, that he can, can be prosperous and wealthy? Like, why is Eli in this position? Why did God establish this family, the, the tribe of Levi? And God's reminding him that, that, Eli, you were put here by me. I had called your tribe out. 
of the twelve tribes to serve me, to go up to my altar, to bring the incense, to wear the, the ephod. Now, this is not uh, what Samuel is described as wearing. Um, he was wearing what his mother had made him, probably a white linen, something like a, a sleeveless robe, um, which the priest would have worn. But, but in regards to the high priest, there was the unique garment. Uh, garment that was the, the golden vest, and in the vest was inlaid the 12 precious stones representing the, the 12 tribes of Israel. This was unique to the high priest. And Eli was, was representing the, the priesthood in this, in this moment, which is partly why God comes directly to him, not only as the father of Hophni and Phinehas, but as the high priest who was giving oversight to all the activities in the, in the tabernacle and to the offerings. And I thought of, uh, of the example of, maybe it's somewhat of a strange example, but maybe helps a little bit to, to try and understand the role that God had given to the priests. Uh, I was thinking about the example of a, a restaurant um, and thinking about, you know, we, we like to go out and eat once in a while. Uh, it seems like, it, you know, like everything, it's getting more and more expensive. So maybe the dining out experiences are, are, are you know, um, less and less um, con- consistent or more, you know, more, more um, sorry, the words are getting tangled up. Um, happens less often is what I'm trying to say. And, and, and yet when you go to a restaurant, when you go somewhere to eat out, um, you kind of just are in the, the one area, the sitting area, which is made to look, you know, beautiful, and the lighting is just right, and there's nice tables, and it's clean and tidy. And yet in the, the back, we know there is the kitchen where all of the food is prepared, where everything is brought, and uh, the, the recipes are, the, the chef is there. And really the only person that is to go between the people in the restaurant who are there to enjoy the meal and uh, just to maybe get out of the house for the evening or celebrate an occasion, uh, the person that goes between is the waitress, right? They represent something of the restaurant to the customers, And you really don't typically have a lot of interaction with the chefs themselves, unless you're really disappointed with your meal, maybe, and you want to complain to the chef, and you'll ask to talk to him. Or if you're really impressed, maybe you'll want to thank the chef. But that's maybe uh, something like the the priesthood. If you envision the, the people of Israel were to bring the ingredients that God had called them to, and it was the priests who were to prepare those ingredients um, as the chefs in the kitchen, if you were. They were to prepare them according to the recipe, according to the instructions that God had given. And it is the high priest who then makes that, that bridges that gap between God, who is to be served, who is to be blessed by this establishment, and those who have prepared it. The high priest is the one bringing this offering. And the priests are involved in, in, in coming before the Lord on behalf of the people, bringing the things which the Lord has instructed. This is their role. And it is to remind the people of Israel that God is holy. He is not a God to be flippantly approached in worship, but he is to be reverently and obediently Approached, And it is also a reminder of the sin that separates them from God. God being holy cannot um, simply have sinful, unclean people casually coming into his presence. There is this great chasm that exists. And the priests are to bridge that gap, if you will, on behalf of the people. 
So as you understand the, the purpose for which God had raised them up, you see the offensiveness of what Hophni and Phinehas and Eli were doing. Not only had they disregarded the instructions God had given them, but they'd made a mockery of the very means in which God had established to draw near to his people, for his people to bring the offerings and the, and the sacrifices as, a, as an atonement for their own sins. The priests had failed in what God had called them to do. They'd forgotten why God had called them in the first place. And it seems that Eli perhaps knows God. We're told his sons do not know God. So we have even on top of the abuse of what they're doing, we have the the further disturbing picture of the fact that we have unregenerate, unsaved priests supposedly representing the God they don't even know. And how desperate, even today in the church, when there are people who do not know God, do not love God, and yet supposedly representing him to the people of God. And this is something that, you know, you can continue to to pray, not only for me, but you think about other, maybe pastors or leaders whom you've been encouraged by, blessed by. Really, the the great challenge is that we are seeking to know the Lord. And this is even for you in in your homes and in your own personal life that we're not seeking just to go through a sort of external religion. But we actually know the Lord. We, We love him. We're cultivating this relationship with God through his word, through Christ, by his Holy Spirit. And to pray that God would raise up shepherds for his people who love him above all else. And for us as, as followers of Christ, considering this warning to Eli, the reminder of his calling and his purpose, we too often need to be reminded of who we are. Why has God called us out of darkness into light? What are we set apart for? Who do we belong to? We were once blind and indifferent to God and his word, and yet by his spirit, he opened our eyes. He, he drew us to himself. He put within us new desires for his word, for his people. And we are set apart, unique unto him, that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Eli and his sons began to take this for granted. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, consider your calling, brothers. Consider how God had brought you to himself and why it is that you are here. We are first and foremost to serve and minister unto the Lord and then to love also our neighbor as ourself. So the second response to Eli and his house, we have not only does God remind him of his calling and his purpose, But we have God also revealing his sin. He exposes it. There is no way for Samuel then to deny his guilt before God. And listen to how he exposes the sin of Eli and his house. In verse 29, after reminding him of of what he is supposed to be doing, he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? 
So God is telling Eli, Eli, if, if you are aware of why I've called you, if you're aware of your role, that you are to, to bring these sacrifices before me, why is it that you have made a mockery of my offerings? You have scorned my sacrifices, he said, that I commanded for my dwelling. And you honored your sons above me. Now, this is very interesting. There are sins of, of omission and sins of commission that Eli is being confronted with here. We're not told that Eli himself, sorry, we're not told that Eli himself uh, was engaging in taking of the, the cuts of meat that were forbidden to him. Did he go around with his sons and sticking the fork you know, into the, the, the pot of meat from the people of Israel and pulling out random cuts to eat? We're not specifically told if Eli did or not. Uh, was it Eli that was taking the sacrifices off the altar before they were, um, before they were burnt and, 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 and prepared unto the Lord? It would seem that maybe the sons were doing this, but Eli was also sharing in the, the, um, the, res- the result of what they were doing. He was also fattening himself, God says. And in fact, later we'll see Eli presented as an extremely obese man. And this actually is partly what brings about his own death. But I think more than even just the, the external actions that they were doing, God addresses the very heart of the problem with Eli and his sons. He says that you have honored your sons more than me. You have feared them, we could even say, more than he feared God. And this is very much the root cause of his sin. And this is very sobering for us because we suddenly realize that though we are 3,000 years removed from Eli and this situation, that this is a particular sin that we are not immune from. We begin to realize how susceptible we are to this very sin for which God punishes Eli and, and brings about his, his, his fall and even his descendants of severe punishment upon the house of Eli because he did not honor God above man. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we would know that in our own hearts before God, we are often in danger of this very thing. Especially as we find ourselves in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, increasingly hostile to the scriptures. I mean, it it's, sometimes seems hard to believe that we are right now reading from a book that our own country is progressively calling illegal and hateful and, uh, you know, atheistic as far as their own state religion goes This is the country that we actually live in. And as Christians, as followers of God, we have to settle in our own hearts and minds. Are we going to fear man or are we going to fear God? When it comes to matters of right and wrong, of good and evil. A lot of times our true convictions are revealed when we are presented with an opportunity to honor God or honor man. And the most difficult place for us to, I think, really uh, stand fast upon the word of God, to really walk in the fear of the Lord, is when it comes to our own family, our own children, 
our moms and our dads and our brothers and sisters and our cousins. And this is exactly what Eli was guilty of. If we see our mom or dad or our brother or sister walking in rebellion to God, are we willing to confront them, you know, graciously, lovingly, humbly, hopefully we can come to them and and point out the inconsistencies with the word of God? If they're an unbeliever, uh, obviously that relationship changes a bit because if they're professing to to be a Christian and yet living uh, in, in sin and rebellion, then we approach them as a, a brother or sister in Christ, if they are not a professing believer, then, then it is more the work of the evangelist in, in seeking to share the, the gospel with them, to, to show them of their guilt. So, um, you know, I think there's a specific, uh, specific application to the household of faith here. But nonetheless, we have to come before the Lord on this matter and and really settle the issue, are we going to fear God or are we going to fear man? And we need to pray. We need to ask God to give us an increased fear of his name, an honoring of his name, a revering of his name, even if it means offending your spouse or your child or your mom or your dad. Who is it that we will honor? And I'm thinking as, uh, as parents, This is something that actually starts when our children are very young. Today, there are many who think that to discipline their child is is bad, it's cruel, that it's uh, too harsh and too authoritarian. And they they convince themselves that their child just needs to express themselves. And we don't really need to discipline our children. We don't really need to to, uh, give them consequences for bad behavior. And yet God's word tells us in Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves his, uh, who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. So to, to not discipline, to not to exercise authority as a mother and a father is actually to show hatred to your son, the Bible says. Now, of course, there's always the question of well, what, what is appropriate discipline and what does that look like? Again, our own country, I think, you know, technically speaking, in Canada, you're allowed to spank your child three times with your hand. Anything beyond that is considered child abuse. And and we just have this distorted, twisted view of not only the role of the parent, but also the the nature of the child. And of course, we don't want to be abusive as parents. We want to discipline in love and in in self-control, not to discipline in anger. Or, or to do so in a, in a way that is unfitting for the offense. But it has struck me over the years in, in, in my own children, not that I in, in many ways uh, am, have done this perfectly, uh, still a day-by-day walk by faith, but, but when it comes to disciplining your children, it is very much an act of faith. The Word of God tells us to, to discipline them, which at times, yes, may mean giving them a spank correcting them, giving them consequences for their actions. This is what God has called us to. And it is a way of honoring God above your child to discipline them for their good because you love them. 
And Eli is a very sad picture of a father who tried to keep the peace by tolerating his son's sin. Yes, he whined at them, he complained at them, but he never actually executed any form of discipline. No actual consequences for what they were doing. We see that Eli came to them and said, can you guys just please stop this? Like, I've had enough of this. The people are talking about what you're doing. And yet Eli is unwilling to, to bring about any form of consequence for their actions. We know that he couldn't change their hearts, but he should have disciplined them for their sin, according to the law of Moses. And actually, in that particular time, under the civil laws given in Deuteronomy, the, 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 the sins that they committed actually would have been a capital offense. And under Mosaic law, they would have been executed. And yet Eli is, is continually protecting them, coddling them, enabling them, I'm not saying that we need to execute our children when they (laughs) become disobedient, but but do you understand the principle here? We have to determine that we will discipline according to the instruction and admonition of the Lord, even when it means offending our child. We stand upon the truth and trust that God will bring about the change of heart. In a book, uh, Jim Neuheiser said... um, You never stop being a parent. He is talking about relating to older children, but I found this application very helpful on this point. I think it's worth lingering over for a moment. He said, um, while parents cannot be held responsible for the sins of their independent adult children, they are responsible for what goes on under their roof. When dad and mom, like Eli, become enablers of sinful lifestyles, they inadvertently dishonor the Lord and share in the sin and guilt of their kids even though that's the farthest thing from their minds. When we refuse to do what the scriptures require of us and allow our children to live an ungodly lifestyle, we're not doing so because we love our children. We're supporting their sin because we love ourselves more than we love them and their souls. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to face conflict. And most of all, we don't want to suffer loss. Year after year, we go on lying to ourselves, nagging our children, and hoping for the best, even though we refuse to obey the Lord. And I found that very convicting for myself. Uh, It's it's natural as, as parents to want to maintain good relationship with our children, to, to, to grow up and see that, you know, friendship continue and grow and to maintain that, that contact with them. And, you know, I can't go on reading all of his book. Jim Neuheiser was dealing with the issue specifically of um, children who are refusing to maybe take responsibility. And he was saying parents, there maybe comes a time when, when they need to accept the consequences of their action. Maybe it's paying for their own car insurance and, and uh, maybe missing those payments and them having to you know, accept the responsibility of that instead of always mom and dad bailing them out for foolish decisions, that sort of thing. But the principle is the same. We are called to to fear the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to uh, call men to account and trust that God will in the end bless it and use it. This doesn't only apply to family life. Obviously, there's application there um, in rearing children. But in the workplace, are we more concerned with what our coworkers think than what God thinks of us? Are we laughing at crude jokes because we don't want to be the weirdo in the group? We don't want to be the odd one out? 
We, we want to be well thought of by our fellow man. And so we kind of go along knowing that this is actually offensive to a holy God. We honor man and dishonor God. Maybe the boss asks us to add a few more hours to a job, knowing that we didn't put in those hours, but he's wanting to pad the bill a little bit to make a few extra dollars. And so he asks you just to, just to fudge the numbers a little bit. I mean, who's going to really know? What's the big deal? We have to ask ourselves, are we going to fear men or are we going to fear God? That, that, that to lie about this is, is an offense against God himself. Even as Joseph in the house of Potiphar would not commit adultery with, with Potiphar's wife because he feared God. That's a sin against God. I can't do that. I can't give myself to this and offend my God. You see how the fear of God protects us, enables us to stand firm against temptation, and helps us to, to discern between right and wrong, knowing there may be terrible consequences that come to those who dishonor man. As I said, we're seeing that in our own day. We may, we may find ourselves in prison simply because we won't tell a, a young man who wants to be a woman that he's actually a woman. No, we're going to tell you that you're a young man. God has made you this way. And that may actually land us in prison or with lawsuits or get our name you know, smeared on social media. Not that I don't think any of us are too worried about maintaining a name on social media. But um, do you understand this principle is so important? There's so many ways in which we have to settle in our hearts and minds. And I think especially for you as husbands and fathers, you need to lead your family in this, whether it's from the form of, of, of media and music that you take in. What am I going to do on Sunday? I would like to sleep in. I'd like to stay and watch the ball game. I would rather go fishing or whatever it might be. But are we going to fear the Lord? Are we going to honor him? Are we going to set aside this day as worship? You see, this, this is such an important question. And I think one of the most tragic scriptures in the Bible is John 12, 41 and following. Well, 42, I'll pick up at 42. John 12, 42 is an analysis of the people who are seeing Jesus perform his miracles. They're seeing uh, the things that he's doing. They're hearing the words that he speaks. And yet John gives this analysis of the people in John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is the sin of Eli. He loved the glory of man. He loved the glory of his children. And it cost him everything in the end. And so I think there's a, there's a call for us to, to come honestly before the Lord. I think we would be lying to ourselves if we would say none of us have a fear of man. Uh, certainly, certainly I know that in myself, even you know, over the strange COVID years, uh, somebody complains, you get a phone call, and, and you, you, your heart rate quickens, and you're thinking about all the things that are going to happen. I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to be in prison, and then and, and, and this fear begins rising in your heart. We deal with the fear of man in so many ways. And I think we need to come honestly and humbly before God and, and confess it to him. Acknowledge it before God and say, Lord, I, I know that I many times do desire the praise of man. I, I love the praise of man. I, I fear man in many situations more than I fear you, God. And, and we confess that and we pray and ask him to help us fear his name. 
We need to settle this now because we may find ourselves in a country that doesn't just mock you on social media, but maybe places you before a firing squad because of your Christian faith. Are we going to stand? Are we going to honor God? What if, like Daniel, we suddenly find ourselves in a country where it's illegal to pray to anyone but our prime minister? I mean, the way we're going, that actually doesn't seem all that unbelievable in Canada. What would we do? Are we going to fear man? Are we going to fear God? Are we going to bow the knee to Caesar? Are we going to remain faithful to our king? God, help us to be steadfast, to fear his name. A.W. Pink said, if we are content to offend God rather than displease our friends, we are greatly deceived if we regard ourselves as genuine Christians. And I'm not saying any of us do this perfectly. There are times when we stumble and we know that we had compromised. We know that we, we missed an opportunity to speak into something. And, and, and that's where we need to depend upon the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and, and the renewal and, and come and, and, and confess that. How do we cultivate this fear of God? Well, we must cultivate a high view of God so that we properly know him and, and honor him. When you know who he is and you're truly con- convicted of that in your heart, not just by reading it in the scriptures, but then praying, God, help this truth about God to be so deeply rooted in my heart that I, when I'm faced with the fear of man, that, that it is nothing in comparison to my fear of a holy God. You think about young children, one of the, the great... Uh, you know, terrors of, of parenting is that young children do not know what things they ought to fear and what things they, they should not fear. And many times they're, they're quite fearless, and this is terrifying. They, they walk out into an open road because they have no concept of the, the consequences you get hit by a truck. They want to go towards the, the fire because they, they don't understand that that's actually going to burn me. They think open water is so fascinating. You know, you throw the rocks in and they splash and there's ripples and it's just so fun. I could do this all day. But they have no understanding that if I get into that water that I actually can't breathe and I can't swim and I could die. They don't understand these things because they don't understand the world in which they live. The bee looks quite interesting and I kind of want to grab it. I want to hold on to that little buzzing creature until you realize that thing has a stinger. And you remember your child's first bee sting and for weeks they're petrified of bees anything that looks remotely like a bee is a bee it's a bee i don't want to go near it because you see they they have reorientated themselves to understand the reality of the world in which they live and it is similar with god as we come to know who he is as we come to be to know something of his holiness and his power and his justice then 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 we are riveted by this god that so that when we approach the things that offend him or we're tempted to rebel against him, that, that reverence and awe of who God is actually keeps us from the things that would in the end destroy us. And Eli had forgotten this. And so God pronounces judgment on him and his house. And it is, it is a very stern, harsh judgment. And God essentially points out that they had broken covenant, that there was a promise to the house that they would stand before God forever. But as Israel stood uh, before Moses and affirmed the covenant, they said, yes, we will do all the things according to this law. You see that they had made also a covenant with God, that they would uphold his word and walk in his ways and be set apart from the nations 
and they broke that covenant. And God says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And so Eli's house is cut off. And God tells them there will be no, mo- there will be no old man in his house. That in the prime of their life, his house will be cut off. And they will look with envy at the strength of Israel. And they, they will go from a position of feasting richly at the altar of God to a place of poverty and begging. And this is a reminder that God is just. He is holy. And, and there may be a season in which it seems like man is getting away with his sin. But there comes a day of reckoning. And God will bring judgment Sometimes temporally in this life upon someone, but we know the ultimate final judgment comes in the second death in hell itself when every man will be judged according to his sin if they are outside of Christ. God is not mocked. People today who say, well, I'm eternally secure, so it doesn't really matter that I still sin. It doesn't really matter that I backslide or do what I want because, well, I've been forgiven and I am a child of God no matter what. And I'm sure if you would have asked Hophni and Phinehas if they were children of God, if they will inherit the promises of God, they would have said, well, of course, we're the offspring of Abraham. We are the chosen tribe of Levi. We're descendants of Aaron, the high priest. We're, like the, we're the great nephews of, of Moses himself. Of course we're the children of God. Of course we will inherit his promises. If there's anybody in Israel that we would suppose would inherit the promises of God, it would have been Hophni and Phinehas of the very priestly line of Aaron. Relatives of Moses himself. And yet God tells them, because you have despised me, you will be lightly esteemed. You see... When it comes to the Christian faith, each person will stand before God and give an account for their own sin. And they will either be found in Christ as they have personally placed their faith in Christ, repented and trusted and been born again, or they will be cast aside. In that sense, as it has been said, God does not have grandchildren. None of my children are saved simply because they are my children. That there must be an individual work in their heart, in their life. They must personally repent of their sin and call upon Christ. Now is God faithful to bless the labor of parents who pray for their children and present the gospel to them and bring them up in the fear of the admonition of the Lord? Yes, God is faithful and we praise him for that. That is really our only hope. But we mustn't ever let ourselves slip into this idea that we are okay with God simply based upon our family line or my great-grandfather and the things that he did or, or my own social status. You see, we will come before God naked and on our own and give an account. And these sons of Eli experience the stern judgment of God as he pronounces coming wrath upon them. Even as, as Moses told Aaron when, when his sons were taken because of their sin, 
Moses said to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. God will show himself holy, specifically on those who draw near to him. And these priests are an example of that. But thankfully, that's not all that God tells Eli. Lastly, we find also that God gives, in the midst of this very sobering word, a promise as well. A promise of a faithful priest. And God says, in the midst of this judgment, that I will, in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do all according who will do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, my anointed forever. And this is one of the wonderful things about God, is even in the midst of judgment and warning, there is this promise of a deliverer, promise of God's faithfulness, and it's interesting in Acts 2, I know uh, for those working through the reading plan, was reading through uh, some of Acts. And I found it so interesting in light of this promise that we're reading here um, to hear how Peter talked about this in Acts 2.22. He's preaching um, in Jerusalem, Solomon's portico. And listen to what he says in light of this promise that God gives to Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. to read 322. I mean, it's a great passage. It just wasn't the one that I had in my, in my mind. Um, okay, sorry. 322. I apologize. Um, so Peter preaching again. That was at Pentecost in 2. 3, uh, he's preaching again at Solomon's portico after the healing of the blind, the blind uh, beggar or the lame man. So 322, sorry. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days 
You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so in Christ, the apostles are seeing the fulfillment of the words spoken to Moses of this one whom God would send, whom Samuel himself says would come after him. And so this promise, maybe in an immediate sense of a faithful priest, could be referring to Samuel, whom God is obviously raising up. But in a far greater sense, this points us forward to Christ, the faithful priest whom God will establish and whom God will build a house to dwell forever. This is a promise of a coming, faithful, perfect, sinless priest. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this, and we'll close here with a few verses from Hebrews in thinking about Christ as the fulfillment of this promise given to Eli in the midst of his own condemnation. And Hebrews 7:11 says, "Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron?" He goes on in verse 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were, in, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds this, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect Forever And in Christ, we see the fulfillment that God has established his priest forever. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, not from the line of Levi, not from the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, this mysterious Old Testament figure without genealogy, without mother or father, whom Abraham himself pays the tithe to, very mysterious to us. Is this a pre-incarnate form of Christ himself? Some argue in regards to Melchizedek. Who exactly is this man? But the point the author of Hebrews is making is Jesus stands as the perpetual, eternal priest of his people, not after the Levitical system, but after a new order that is eternal and perfect. And this is our priest. This is the one who has reconciled us to God, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood, by shedding his life upon Calvary, by his blood being poured out, his body broken, so that we might be able to draw near to God. And because of this, Hebrews tells us he is a perfect priest. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him because he always lives to make intercession. And so we can rejoice in God's mercy and kindness, even in the midst 
of the pronouncement of judgment upon Eli, God shows himself as our faithful redeemer and our, and our savior. And we see that fulfilled in Christ our Lord. So let's pray there this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And I uh, ask you to bow with me. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we are amazed that it has been preserved over these many years so that we might also benefit from it, that we might come to know who you are, Lord. We may come to understand ourselves rightly, that we are a fallen people, that the very sins that plague the house of Eli, Lord, dwell within us, and we battle them, and we struggle, and we often are guilty of, of cowering to the praise of man, to honoring man above you. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from this, that you would hold us fast, Lord, that you would grant us humility, but also great courage and boldness in a generation that, Lord, uh, has established their own religion, has established their own blasphemy laws. And, Lord, we know that the, the gospel message is still an offense. So I pray you give us steadfastness. Lord, help us to resolve now to seek you, to honor you in our homes, our workplaces, our families, in our country as citizens. And to leave those results of that stand to you, God, trusting that you will continue to build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for Christ, our high priest, for his finished work upon the cross, the once for all sacrifice by which we are made clean and through which we can draw near. God, help us to to do that even now in our hearts before you, to draw near to you, to confess our sin, to praise you and worship you, to trust in your promises that you'll not leave us nor forsake us, that you will bring about the fullness of your kingdom and, and Lord, that we would live as such a people that believe this. We thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for the, the, the blood shed and the body broken. And even as we partake now, I pray that, Lord, we would give thanks unto Christ, our faithful priest, and ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.